and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 299 and my conversation with Georgia-based percussion educator, performer, DCI and WGI clinician, and someone who runs his own audiovisual media company, Marcus Hawkins. We'll get to him shortly. So how's everybody holding up? You know, I haven't checked in with you for a while, so I just hope that you're all doing well, or as well as you can, and you're getting a deserved break, or you've taken a break and are jumping back into the fold. Whatever it is, I hope you're staying mentally and physically well. With all that continues, with the coronavirus and its effects, along with what feels like an endless string of bad news particularly as it regards Supreme Court decisions, it can be a lot. So, recharge, reconfigure, do what you need to, and then continue on. The work never ends. It never does. And with that, let's move on to Marcus Hawkins. Marcus and I are meeting for the first time in this interview, and I think it goes really well. Marcus is based in Cobb County, Georgia, and works most closely with a number of high school drum lines in the area. He is also very active as a percussion performer, mostly through drum set in a variety of genres. He is also active with many drum corps and winter guard groups as a teacher, caption head, and technician. He has a lot of great things to say about the art of teaching and performance, of setting up your own studio and doing your own recording, playing in church growing up, gigging during college, and getting your career started. You'll hear about all of that, along with a lot of fun that we have during our usual closing segment. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 17th, 2022, and it begins right now. All right, so Marcus... Give me a summation of your percussion activities, responsibilities as they are for you. Currently, I'm a percussion specialist in the Cobb County area here in Georgia. Um, so I teach in Cobb County um, at a few schools and then um, a school that's slightly outside of Cobb County. Um, I also still play drum set a lot, both in the studio and perform. Um, I still do some filling gigs from various uh, community groups, orchestras, that type of thing. Do you do any like um, DCI or drumline arranging or or stuff like that? I know I think that was yeah yeah. So normally I'll arrange um, slash compose uh, front ensemble battery books, mm-hmm. sound design stuff for at least ten different programs per year. I have worked with uh, the two DCA groups here in Georgia and the DCI group here in Georgia. Which groups are those again? Oh, so um, I worked with a, a DCA group called Alliance. Um, for years and years, I think from 2008 until 2016, maybe uh, a few years. Uh, also within there, I worked with uh, Atlanta CV, which is another DCA group um, with Chris Romanowski and crew. Um, and then uh, I worked one of those years at Spirit. I did a, a little bit of their spring spring training stuff. I believe that was in 2007. I'm going on a road this year with Blue Knights. Um, and things as one of their, you know, battery techs. 
and stuff. So that's happening in a few weeks. Looking forward to it. <laughs> They'll be on the on touring at that point, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna hop on um pretty much the day before their first show. Okay. Uh, and I'm gonna be with them for like uh two-ish weeks or so. On something like that, what what's your typical activities? What are the things that when you're brought in, what are they asking you? What expertise are they asking for from you? Specifically with them, I'm going to be a snare tech, okay. right? But um, my range of things has has varied greatly um, over all of the different groups. You know, I've been a front ensemble tech. I've been a battery tech. I've been um, a caption head. Uh, so all, all of the things. I've been a visual instructor, <laughs> the water boy. So um, it really just depends. And, you know, you just you have to be versatile. So that's what it is for me. With the 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 snare tech part, what is it? Is it like mostly an like what I guess I'd say like an off hours thing? Like they'll rehearse and then after each like you know when there are breaks, it's like this is your time to come in, do your job, or or are you doing like instruct? Like I tell me a little bit more about like how your day goes when most drum corps will have their day split into at least maybe three-ish blocks, okay. right? So at some point in the morning, let's just say eight o'clock, um, like there'll be a visual block. So them learning their drill, rehearsing uh, body posture technique, that kind of stuff until like maybe lunchtime, most of the time after lunch. So let's just say one o'clock to around five o'clock is sectional time. Mm -hmm. So that's when you have your individual specialist work with the specific groups. Yeah. Um, in the afternoon, so after dinner, until whenever people choose to go to bed, um, <laughs> you'll have uh, some form of ensemble, whether that be a percussion ensemble or the full ensemble of the actual core. Um, all of that's generalities, but that's kind of how it goes for a lot of places. Gotcha. When you're being brought in for uh, like this time around, they're basically like, this is the finishing touches, right? Or, or at least the finishing touches at this point. Right. Like before they've done a lot of the, the 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 process has already gone for quite a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so they've been out here for maybe, um, I think, three weeks. Um, they've been sort of in their training all days, move in kind of thing. I guess like an advanced version of band camp, if people want to say it like that. Mm -hmm. So um, some people have already finished their shows and and some people are still putting on you know, like their third and fourth movement as far as the actual visual productions of it and things. So they already have all of the music, but they're still, I'm pretty sure, um, putting on some of the visual aspects to it. Um, it really just depends from group to group as far as how fast they want to move through their production. So when I hop on, I'm pretty sure they're going to be, um, everything's going to be on. Yeah. It's just a matter of of tweaking. And, and I think like anything else, you're always working on fundamental sounds. You know, you're working on uh, clarity, balance, blend, touch, those types of things. And that that takes a season to work on. And even after that, you know, you're like, I wish I had a month more. You know? <laughs> We're just getting good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. So when you get brought in, what? how do you work with the other folks that are that are also doing kind of your thing for their specialized sections? Does that become more of like an like an ensemble thing where you're all kind of taking notes together versus kind of the more specific things that you might be working on with like just the snares. 
Hmm. Good question. So it depends on the group, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, there, there are some groups that um, you'll have a very kind of hands-on battery coordinator or a percussion coordinator, percussion caption head, and they might want to address the whole group the whole time and have everybody listening to one person. Um, and in those cases, you have to be a mature enough person to say, okay, I've done that role. I need to move back and let them talk and let that person have the floor. But then some other people, you know, they they want you to um, constantly be with your people and like, you know, kind of chit-chatting and giving them little pieces of nuggets, you know? So you have to kind of read the room and understand somebody else's educational style for you to kind of like, do you want me to get in here or do you want me to like wait to see, you know? Gotcha. So does that mean that you've kind of fun- functioned in multi and many of these, a range of the formats basically? Yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. So, you know, the, the bigger the ensemble, the, the less you're going to be talking or instructing, you know, you might be reminding a little bit, but like, let's say if you're in a full core rehearsal, um, the people who are up top are going to be speaking first and and mostly. And then, you know, you might have a little a little bit of time, like when they're resetting or something, just to give a few reminders or maybe a few like prompts about the things that they should think about with the section that's about to come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. It's like you have 15 seconds and you're, and you're like, you like run in and like, hi, three, hi, three, or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and hopefully within that middle block of the day, you know, that four-ish yep. or five-ish hours, right. you know, you would have um, established a deeper sort of thing for, for them to think about and and breaking down things and really digging into the, the weeds. Yeah. So you can just kind of have some key words to remind them of. Mm-hmm. Right when you have these rehearsals, is there a plan from outside of you that's like, we, this is the segment or do you have, you know, the authority to just say, here's what, like, here's what we're working on because it's my call versus someone else's call. It, it, for most people, I think it really depends on where you fit within the organization. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and I think, once again, people's educational styles are so different um, and stuff. And and me, as a person who's done multiple jobs, I have to realize uh, where I fit in and how I can best sort of help the vision of whoever's in charge. Let's say it like that, right? Mm-hmm. So if I know that, you know, we've been talking about letter F or whatever, then um, I'm, I'm going to try to rehearse that first in my sectionals to make sure we address those things and do breakdowns and whatever, whatever. And then maybe if I had a section that I think also needs a little bit of work, that comes after the overarching goals of the percussion ensemble. The time period that you're, you're going to be with them, you said they're going to be, they, they will be doing some of their performances? Yeah, so basically I fly in one day before the first DCI show that they have. Okay. And then you'll be there for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when they're doing their performances, uh, where do you like to be? Are you like, do you like to be like on the field, like with your, you know, clear eyed there? Or are you like a, a high up and, and are you, do you take notes? How do you, how do you kind of, what, what's your stance for those sessions? For me, it just depends. And and I'll, every answer is like, it just <laughs> well, it really depends on the role. You know, if I'm in a caption head role, I'm yeah. going to 100% be 
um, up top because I need to see the bigger picture because of course the people who I need to be collaborating with are the other caption heads, right? right? How is this balance and blend with um, the the wind, the brass, right? Um, what sort of visual notes do I need to take that can probably help us to uh, paint the picture a little bit better? Or maybe there's some environmental challenges that I think we might need to change, right? And then what kinds of things can we do from a general standpoint to, to push certain sections more as far as more energy or maybe the times we need to kind of hang back and maybe rewrite some parts because we're doing too much. If I'm a tech though, like if I come in as a snare tech, a lot of times I'm gonna, I just wanna be kind of feel level. I wanna hear from a, a micro level what they're doing um, and maybe what the judge is actually hearing down on the floor so I can address some of those things. How did you get connected with Blue, Blue Knights? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you connect connected with them and the other uh, DCA groups that you've mentioned? So, I, you know, I think like everything, all of those are like roundabout stories where like, <laughs> you know, somebody you've seen, they've saw you teach at a band camp. Some people have maybe seen you teach yeah, online, yeah. like that kind of stuff. I have a, a YouTube page I've been teaching for years, that kind of stuff. So in every single case, it's always somebody knew me and somebody else knew me and they connected that person to the other person. And it's it's kind of a roundabout way. But I would say, you know, for people who are looking to get into this kind of stuff, um, the the more you travel in these circles and the more you participate in whatever the community you're in, um, the better you have a chance of of being known and recommended through people, you know. Um, and all of us have multiple different worlds that we're in, you know, like right. little sub pockets. I have a media company. So I happen to know a lot of cameramen and directors and lighting people and grips, you know, and that that's a different set of worlds, you know. Um, so I think the percussion world works the same way. There are people who like uh, it almost never crosses over for me with the drum set world, like the studio yeah. musician world here no most of them don't even know i teach right i don't i don't even mention it like it's not a thing you know I'll, they just know i'm a drum set player and yeah. and this is the funny part um there's a whole separate community of people who kind of only know me as like the hand drum guy like so i come in with my congas and my my bongos and stuff and shakers like they know me as that person right. and that almost doesn't cross over either so it's really yeah. weird um the little sub pockets of people you know? Yeah. <laughs> of the things that you, that you are part of your career, you know, not just the, um, the marching side, the, the performing side, the, the teaching, which of those is the, is the thing that started your path as a professional? Oh man. I would say it's the performing stuff, okay. you know? And, and it's weird to me how that works because it, to me, it doesn't really have that much of a crossover. And I'll explain, right? Uh, to um, what? When I was in college. Um, crossover to what? I, to, to teaching. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I was in college, uh, I, I started doing corporate gigs. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be traveling, you know, overseas, across state lines, almost every weekend. It was, it was probably a pretty bad choice because my professor didn't know, but I showed up to many a lesson unprepared, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because, I mean, I was, I just didn't want to tell anybody. I was like, I was in Hawaii this weekend, like, <laughs> making money, you know? And um, so the, the kind of last two years are, are a bit rough, you know? Um, oh, sure, yeah. But uh, 
I, I think the the performance aspect got me kind of really into it, you know, as far as um, understanding the this push and pull between technicality, but also energy and how to entertain an audience, like mm-hmm. that whole other side and being able to back up off of a product and put down your tech, you know, um, percussion hat and and put on your director's hat, you know, like, let me produce a show type situation. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the thing. And and unfortunately, and fortunately for me, um, band directors and people who, you know, work at these places will see a resume and they'll see that you've performed in all of these places and they see that you've um, done all of these, you know, playing type things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that impresses them sometimes, but it has nothing to do with teaching, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's plenty of amazing performers who, um, who, haven't worked on their communication chops and they haven't worked on just the the idea of having multiple different techniques that they could use. Most performers are extremely good in the technique that they do, but not that great in other things, you know? Um, So, uh, but it requires for you to have that as a teacher though, for you to at least be aware and to be able to explain different ways to do things because all of your students are different. Um, So that's why I say, it's kind of, I don't agree necessarily with how I got into it because most of their impressive things, it's not based off of who I've taught, it's based off of the places I've performed, mm-hmm. um, which I think is the wrong way to go about it. But either ways, that's how it happened. Yeah. yeah. So that so the performing was first and, yeah. and, and then you are from there or because you are just kind of income supplement, you're, you're picking up are you just like getting into high schools are you like how what's the kind of the next step then when I first started teaching which is I I was in high school I taught a school kind of down the road from me Um, I was a senior in high school so I've always have have taught you know very very early and I think um over the summers when I was in college, besides the one summer that I actually marched drum corps, I marched a spirit drum and bugle corps in 2004. Um, but besides that one summer, I would be out doing five or six weeks of band camps. So I got to see so many different styles of teaching and so many different ideologies mm-hmm. as far as how people um, share process information, right? What were some of the ideologies that may have been at odds with one another that you saw at the, do you remember? So one of the biggest ones, um, I think for me is that, uh, the history of drum corps comes from a little bit more of a militaristic community kind of band situation. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who do the whole, like run and touch the sign or do push-ups or everybody, you know, do this physical activity. Yeah. Whereas me, um, I take more of the ideology of let's just work on sounds let's shape sounds let's let's make colors let's smell textures right and and we're going to explore sounds together and if you have discipline problems you can just leave but we're going to be getting better at sounds here you know and you can make sounds on any instrument it just happens to be percussion that we're making sounds on here right um so in the same way that I would teach an orchestra I would teach my percussionist right you just happen to sometimes be outside sometimes right. you're inside it you know, the the venue um, doesn't change your technique of teaching in the way that you basically explore sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those two things are at odds. And, and maybe um, that colored my 
drum corps experience a little bit um, when I was at Spirit. I think they took a little bit more of the militaristic side. I see. Um, so I left in shape, um, not necessarily as a person who appreciated sounds more. Uh huh. You mean in physical shape? Yeah, I left. Like, you could do a lot of push-ups. Like, yes. <laughs> my my triceps were ripped. <laughs> my double paradiddles. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, you know, and that gets into we are talking about kind of the the shaping of sounds and all of that can get into the ways that you can control, you know, this because of all the, the different ways you've taught that you can control um, discipline by running a rehearsal and that, and that like, and it, it will accomplish what the push-ups can also accomplish. Basically, if you, if you're really like lined up with all that. Most definitely. And, and sometimes I do find if you do have some discipline problems, if you don't even address the discipline, if you just narrow down and become so specific about the sounds that you're looking for, those people, their their brain, they don't have time to think about other things because right. you're so involved in the sounds they're making. Yeah. You know, and if and if you could take that direction and be very specific with it, they have a goal to go towards as opposed to a lot of times just being bored and thinking they can play whatever it is you're you're trying to get them to play. So do you do you teach privately also? Not anymore. You know, my, my schedule is just super full. You know, um, like I said, I, I I teach, I've narrowed it down to sort of two main schools, at least kind of on a weekly basis, sometimes three or four, mm-hmm. but it's mainly two. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm I'm managing my media company um and stuff. So we we do it's still in the band space. So we do a lot of concerts. I do a, a pretty good amount of dance recitals, that kind of stuff. Some corporate videos, but a whole lot of concerts. Yeah. Gotcha. So when did that part of your career start, the media company part? I would say it started maybe like 15-ish years ago. And okay. and honestly, um, it was just out of people wanting to see me play a drum set. They're like, hey, send us an audition tape. Mm-hmm. So I would kind of film something and I was like, this looks terrible. <laughs> right. So I would start Googling how to make this look better. Yeah. And, you know, and they're like, you need this kind of camera, these kind of microphones mm-hmm. and um, and all of that rabbit hole and information online has led me to a point. Whereas now, I mean, I at least during the pandemic, I was making way more money doing just video things as opposed to teaching, you mm-hmm. know, Um and stuff. So it's it's definitely interesting to see people who, I guess, took the other route, like they went to school and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I learned from YouTube, <laughs> like, yeah, you yeah. know, so I mean, but it's just been so many years and I'm just a nerd with it. And just like with drumming, you know, a, a lot of stuff I just learned online. You know, I didn't grow up in a, in a place that had a lot of fancy directors and all these types of things. I was lucky to be around people who um, had a love for sound and people who had a love for students, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's almost better than me having a, an amazing percussion director because those people convinced me that music came first. It doesn't matter your instrument. And then number two, um, if you have a relation with people, um, it makes a, a better connection while you're making your sounds together. You know, and and I thank them for that, almost for, you know, for them not being like, 
we're drummers, like, you know, one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were getting started, what was some of the gear that either needed you needed or you needed to upgrade that you kind of early on realized like, okay, now I'm starting to make the videos or get it, getting the sound quality I actually want that's going to actually be useful to me. If you want to speak specifically from a, a video standpoint, mm -hmm. um, your lighting matters way more than your camera. Mm -hmm. um, I just people, uh, I wish people would, would just be told that from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Lighting matters way more than your camera, right? Um, and then after that, your lens matters way more than your camera. Um, because the first question people ask is, oh, that looks good. What kind of camera is that? I'm like, no, smoke and mirrors. Get these <laughs> lights. <laughs> like, you know, get this lens, you know, or whatever. So I, I think that's that's what can increase your video quality, right? Um, that's a whole rabbit hole about sure. shaping light and whatever, whatever. But um Is it like the I, I was thinking of the um at some point when during the pandemic, my wife, who's also an academic, bought a um the ring light. Ring light. For that, for, for to do this, like, you yeah. know, just yeah. so that when she was doing, having to put every, when we had to put everything uh, asynchronous and, and record videos, she's like, okay, well now, and it, like, I get it. <laughs> yeah. The ring light was very popular and I, and I helped a lot of educators set up their, you know, their live streaming rigs and all this kind of stuff, because it's fairly easy once you understand some principles mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's definitely things you can do that will enhance the depth of your of your of your um production you know just like with music things like i can have a basic root position chord mm -hmm. um but then you can start adding a little spice to it a little depth to it you can you can put a little seven in there a little flat five mm -hmm. you know and you can start like it's still the same thing but there's different qualities of the same thing you know so that's the way i think about lighting um, right now, this is pretty flat. I just, I'm just here, in my, <laughs> whatever. But um, there's definitely things you can do to increase the quality of it. From a sound standpoint, it's just understanding um, the different tools for the jobs. You know, at this point, I own uh, 30, 40 microphones, mm. you know, um, and, and they all do slightly different things. And, and basically, to me, they're like uh, paintbrushes. Right. They 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 have a different texture. They have different, you know, um, parts of the frequency that they can accentuate or attenuate, like kind of take down. Mm -hmm. um, and they have different transient response, like certain ones are better for cymbals. Certain ones are better for, you know, fluffy kick drum sounds or punchy kick drum sounds, you know, like these types of things. So it's it's like a box of crayons to me, you know. I mean, but, you know, without getting into all of that, I, I think the biggest thing is if somebody understands microphones a little bit and maybe microphone placement, and then if somebody understands lighting, that can greatly increase their production. Um, and casting directors recognize that kind of stuff. You know, um, there, there's there been a few uh, of those auditions that I've had over the years um, that people just referred to me as the video guy. They're like, yeah, man. Go back to the drum set, uh, the video guy, just because they they recognize that the video quality and the sound quality was just better than the other people, you know. You were making me think about when I, it's a decade now when I recorded my solo marimba album, but I remember the guys who who did it, 
they set up six mics in various locations. And then I think we only took three of those tracks. <laughs> like literally the other three didn't add anything to the to the sound texture when, when we were doing the mixing. And I was I was just like, well that's kind of fat. Like I saw like I saw the tracks on their whatever they were using, I can't remember, um, on their garage their DAW, but I was like, oh, we're just not using you're right, that doesn't actually that absolutely added nothing. I got you. Okay, cool. And and that's and this is a good part, is you know, it takes maturity for people to understand sure like what to use but also what not to use yeah that's a mature decision to say i have this available but we don't need that let's just not use it you know Mm -hmm. yeah what programming uh like uh digital audio workstations and video stuff what, what what's your what programs do you typically use since my primary platform is uh, Mac computers, mm-hmm. right? I use Logic. Um, a lot of stuff that I program for the uh, the marching bands and things that I work with, uh, they use Mainstage as their live performance rig. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also use that like at a lot of the churches I play for, like drum set and things also. Um, either that or Ableton. Um, and then um, I also use it, at least for me, for my personal productions, because I write a pretty good amount of like commercial music, mm-hmm. um, things kind of outside of the band academic world and yep. stuff, uh, hence all of this <laughs> stuff, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I still write in Logic, but uh, the people, once it gets to a certain level, I just track it out. So I give them stems and most of the time they'll be mixing it in Pro Tools. Okay. Yeah, as far as video work is concerned, I personally use um, Final Cut Pro. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, because of Mac, it just integrates very well. Yeah. Um, but then, once again, when you get to a certain level, people are going to be using either Avid or something like Premiere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That part of your, you know, your your media company aspect. Let's let's jump to the pandemic start because did everything kind of go in that direction or were you still trying to either do like home performance? What what were you doing to kind of maintain yourself when, you know, a whole chunk of your livelihood gets flushed <laughs> down the toilet? <laughs> well, I was crying in the closet. Of course. Yes. Um, I mean, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have so, led with that. <laughs> after the crying in right? the, the fetal position. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So um, basically, you know, I I just wanted to to fill the need that was there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people needed help with setting up their systems for their at home teaching, mm-hmm. right? Their video audio stuff. So I I was kind of consulting with a lot of people. There are a lot of people who did need um, kind of uh, online clinic drum things, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so I would record lessons for people with like the backing tracks and multiple camera angles. I recorded all of it in my studio here and I would send it off to them. Um, I taught at a few different schools during their class day. So live, you know, I had video switchers and, you know, I had all of my materials here, you know, um, and, and things. So that really helped. Um, And then also there were a lot of people who were doing those, like everybody recorded home and then kind of put together the virtual bands Yep. I did a lot of those, a whole lot of those. Uh-huh. And that is tedious, right? But, um, and and it saved me though, you know, between that and 
you know, just some of the businesses um, kind of outside of the band world, some of the businesses uh, trying to have certain kinds of promotions of like, hey, we can bring stuff to you or you can use us in this type of way. You know, that that really helped me out. When that when when that happens, when 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 we kind of we were all in lockdown, was that people reaching out to you or were you saying were you like, I'm just going to put a lot of content out to get going, to let people know, like, were you doing a lot of self-promotion or was it ended up being a lot of word of mouth? Marcus is really good. Get to Marcus. Marcus, like what, what kind of happened? I would say it's a little bit of both. There, there were a few different, um, maybe like YouTube videos or little projects that I put out on my own, not for the sake of explicit promotion, but people see that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they say like, hey, I want to do that, but with my kids, or I want my thing to look like that. What do I need to do? Mm-hmm. You know, that type of situation. So I would say that would be kind of the promotion part of it, um, which is very important, especially for people like me, I, I would say for musicians in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, most of it was word of mouth. Yeah, people were just kind of contact uh, contact me out of nowhere. And I was thankful. So I said yes to everything even though I probably shouldn't have, but I said yes to everything. <laughs> yeah. Your your bank account thanked you, though. I guess it did, yes. <laughs> but the bags under my eyes were right. in my, my money bags. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes, that too. <laughs> it goes without saying. You're at your your home base right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, do you have how much of a of a equipment setup do you have so that you can just kind of keep up with your own skills? Most of the time, it depends, right? Yeah. So, it depends on kind of the time of year and everything, mm-hmm. because there will be sometimes that I do um, a pretty good amount of like remote recording for people, okay. like drum set, hand drums, that kind of stuff. I uh, like I said, like a, a lot of production for for other folks and things. Um, most of the time, it's just kind of auxiliary type instruments here. Sure. Most of my real practicing happens at one of the schools, you know, and it's just like every break I get, I'm just kind of like in there learning things or like messing around, mm-hmm. you know, uh, coming in before and staying after like that kind of stuff. Cause I don't have like physically a marimba here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't really think I have the space, but, um, so yeah, it's it's good at least to have access to timpani and marimba and vibes and all of that kind of stuff at the schools that I needed to. And I have keys, so I can kind of go there anytime I want, you know. Got it. What with the schools, what's your typical schedule at at the at the two places you're you're most working at? So my main school, um, I'll I'll teach three periods a day, mm-hmm. right? And that coincides with their level of band. They kind of have like the top band, the second band, third band, that type of thing. Um, Those percussionists are integrated in band class. So anytime I want to hear how they're relating to the ensemble and what kind of musical choices they're making, we can stay in there and play with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they can come with me and, you know, and most of the time we'll work on fluency of scales, you know, that kind of stuff. I'll normally immediately get getting them play scales faster, you know, because all of them, you know, in middle school had to do the ba, da, 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 and I'm like, no, it's too slow. There's nothing for us. Let's do this, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, let's move on here. You know, <laughs> so um, you know, so so that kind of stuff. And we do work on drum set stuff. We work on a lot of rudimental things. Mm-hmm. Um 
and then you know just trying to get them immediately into stuff like solos and um things that'll hold them personally accountable to shaping phrases and and learning music you know most of the time their first two solos i'll learn every single note with them um so like they have the music but basically it's me teaching them how to learn music mm -hmm. you know um so then after that when i set them free they've at least gone through the process twice like how do i learn a solo well you've done it with me twice go fly little bird <laughs> you know <laughs> right during the band periods are you pulling them out and working with them or are they are they in the band and then they have their individual times or both maybe i i pull them out as a group Mm -hmm. Yeah, I pull them out as a group. I might end up switching some stuff up this upcoming year just because, you know, the pandemic, the pandemic kind of sw swapped around a few different places um, with some of the things. So so some of our skill sets, I would say, are a little bit down, sure. you know, yeah. um, from an ensemble standpoint, you wouldn't really be able to tell because, you know, you get to kind of beat the same music to death, you know, but mm -hmm. from an individual standpoint. How can they sight read? How can they make decisions about implements or like which triangle, which symbol, like those types of things? Yeah. Um, they have less to say about those things right. now, you know, so that's the kind of stuff we just have to kind of get better at. Um, so it's going to be a lot of that. <laughs> Do you still as um, as much for the playing? Are you still doing a lot of the corporate uh gigs whenever they're available or is that something that's kind of now in the past not so much anymore i've i've done a lot of programming for corporate gigs so not me physically performing okay anytime somebody will come into town and they need like a drum line or something mm -hmm. um i'm kind of one of the people they'll contact and since you know i kind of know a lot of college students and still some of the people here in town who do drum corps yeah. um i know a, a pretty good amount of people who do um both styles right it's yeah. kind of like the hbcu style yeah. and then um kind of like you know the big 10 kind of football right. style sec that kind of stuff mm -hmm. um so I, i've put a lot of those together but me physically playing in them no i don't want to wear drums anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah you don't need the drum sling on the, for the for the snare drum to, to create another welt on your inner thigh <laughs> and mostly when i when i was doing corporate gigs it was either a straight up drum set or it was um more like a almost like the the stomp production kind mm -hmm. of like in um like, like in the New rooms York. and the, the yeah. trash cans it was a lot of that like a lot of body percussion very mm -hmm. physical stuff because I, I have done a little bit of dance like when i was younger mm -hmm. um so you know I've, I've done some ballet some hip-hop some contemporary and um, a little bit of tap, right? So that was very attractive to some of those companies that did that kind of stuff that I could play. And I'm a pretty outward performer because there was a, a lot of um, a lot of classically trained percussionists didn't make it in those gigs because they couldn't push their energy out to the audience, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I guess it just kind of takes somebody who can kind of do all of that, you know? Right. Um, so... I guess the the whole dancing situation helped. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those skills. I mean, I see this at at, at college all the time, where I I I can like there are times when I'll watch someone perform and like and it's not even necessary. Sometimes it's not the performance, but it's like in the bowing and the appreciation of the audience, and you're just sitting there like, please enjoy that they are applauding for you, like. 
stop trying to run off the stage. Like they are in, they are showing their appreciation. Please take it in. And it's like, they just want to get off the stage. <laughs> like, yeah, see, you know, and I think that's part of the performance, you know, mm-hmm. is bringing the yes, audience. It is in. part of the performance. Thank you. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. And, and I wish, you know, especially when I, when I go to certain people's like recitals and things, mm-hmm. you know, that that's some of the stuff that I guess people who are not in the academic world, will constantly have criticisms over. You know, they're like, the bar music that I heard, you know, last night was more entertaining and they were more engaging than people who study music. Like, they're paying for this, you know, and they give performances and it's like, you know, it's technically good, but it, a lot of times it's, uh, it doesn't make you feel anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously for me, I guess I have a more, intimate connection with it because I have a connection with the literature, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I'm pretty sure I view it in a different light than how they view it. Um, but it's always interesting to at least hear how they talk about it. Yeah. Well, and it it sounds like with your, your dance background that, I mean, you don't have a choice. That's, that's really part of the deal with (laughs) with dance. Like, you know, and thankfully, it really helped me out. You know, I, I think I'm a I'm an okay drummer, but you know, when it was time for me to do stuff like um, WGI indoor drumline, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it helped me out. Um, I marched two years at um, Music City Mystique. They're out of Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Um, yeah. I talked to um, Jacksonville State. Oh, uh, Matt Jordan. Yeah. So I talked to him a few weeks ago. Yeah. So I was like, I know. Why do I know that? Yeah. So. Nice. Yeah. And, and and I marched when Matt was there. Okay. Like we one of those years together. He's an awesome guy, man. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, really, really cool. And it just turns out that I went to JSU, you know, um, for my undergrad stuff. So it's, it's really cool that he's there now. Yeah. But you were, I mean, like, so through, I think we, I kind of got you off the point. I think you were like through the WGI. Yeah. I was saying that it, it helped me at least bring that, portion to the table because you know obviously a lot of people there can really play yeah. and things and, and I'm an I'm an okay player you know I practiced a lot because at least for me I felt like I had to catch up on a lot of things that other people who maybe had like guess more specific percussion instruction had um but uh at least from a performance standpoint and from a body standpoint there are a lot of positive things that they liked about me mm-hmm. you know in audition so I'm thankful for that. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, and, and that group, I mean, it, it changed my life. It changed the way that I thought about, you know, uh, teaching. It changed the way that I thought about um, even, you know, the way that they balance and, and blend things and how they made their decisions and stuff. So it, it was definitely something that changed the course of the way that I teach and the way that I think about uh, music in general. Because it expanded your view of what was possible is that why yeah not only from like the idea of like what we were physically doing on the floor mm-hmm. but all of the members you know bring their own identities of the types of music that they're working on you know so many of them were percussion majors who came from different places so you know we would compare and contrast and talk about different interpretations of like, how are you playing Virginia Tate? Like, oh, this is how I'm doing it, you know? And, you know, we would have all of these discussions about the things and, you know, and talk about, of course, like popular music and techniques. And, but I think 
the environment that was cultivated there is the thing that really changed it. You know, of course, the the staff was amazing and um, and the the administration team, all of that kind of stuff. But the fabric of the people who you were there with was also a part of your education. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I really appreciated. Nice. Yeah. Let's back up. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Milledgeville, Georgia. So Baldwin County, it's um, middle Georgia, if you know where like making is and stuff. So it's about uh, two hours south of Atlanta. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. I always forget that because Atlanta's kind of northwest. Is that right? In in Georgia? Kind of. Okay. I mean, to me, it's just kind of north century. <laughs> <North-ish. laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? Uh-huh. So yeah, it's it's further up, you know, but um yeah, it was, it's about an hour and a half, two hours south of Atlanta is where I kind of grew up. Yeah. Gotcha. Did you have any family members in the arts? No. <laughs> Which of course, you know, I think for me it became a little bit of a problem because even until you know, I was in college and my dad was still trying to convince me to like do sports. Like, hey, you know, they accept walk-ons on the football team, you oh, know, like that kind of thing. So um, it, w- it was always very interesting. My mom wanted to play drums growing mm. up, but at that point they didn't let girls play drums yeah. um, and things. So not really. No, I was kind of the the, lawn, the lone wolf uh, in that regard. <laughs> How did it begin for you? Apparently, I've always banged on things since I was young. And and even um, before any sort of academic school band, I grew up in kind of freestyle hip hop culture. Hmm. So I grew up beatboxing and beating on tables. And and I think that's where some of the uh, if people watch some of my videos like on YouTube and things, I do a lot of singing to the videos. And a lot of people think that that comes from um, the tabla drum tradition um, and, and conical and those kind of things. But it doesn't. It comes from me beatboxing as a kid, you know, and 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 adding on bass lines and sounds and stuff. And at a certain point, I found, you know, like other people who kind of did that kind of stuff. So, you know, just trying to copy their sounds that they made and things. Who were your favorite artists at the time? At the time, it was mainly people from the South, like um, Outkast, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Witch Doctor, Goody Mob, those types of people. Um, eight ball MJG, um, UGK, uh, yeah, a, a lot of them were were kind of at the top of the list, and of course, a lot of I guess contemporary kind of gospel artists. Mm-hmm. What I didn't know at the time, because I thought these things were just normal, but I didn't know those chords were spicy. They were just normal chords to me. Mm-hmm. You no, know, I didn't. I didn't know about mix meter. It's just people were just changing time signature. I didn't even know to call it a time signature, but mm-hmm. those things were very natural to me just because that was the the fabric of what I was doing, you know? Um, so yeah, it was a lot of that stuff. Fred Hammond, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- those types of people, even though I didn't really know who they were, I heard their music on tapes and I would perform their music mm-hmm. um, in church, but I didn't know who they were. Sure. You know? Like tell, like they'd give you the tape, be like, this is what you need to learn. And like, yeah. go learn it. And, and then, but they wouldn't tell you who it was. Or exactly. <laughs> I'm like, what song is this? No, <laughs> yeah. They're like, just show up next time and be able to play it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Are, are you playing drum set from an early age or is this something that comes up later? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure the first time I, I started playing drum set, um, 
at my church when I was in the fifth grade, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it wasn't for like the kids choir. It was like the grown up people main church. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, I mean, you learn real quick if if you're the person who's responsible for the quote unquote Holy Spirit leaving. <laughs> You're not gonna mess that up anymore. <laughs> you, know? like, you try out that new drum feel, and uh, it doesn't hit, and everybody sits down, and you're like, "I'm not going to heaven." <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, Be like, is do, does somebody need to play this for me, or <laughs> there was nobody I, else? Do, do you do I? Can I take the sticks, or do I just leave? Do I just? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like the best teacher because, you know, they didn't care that you were a kid. They wanted you to play the, they wanted you to play the tunes and yeah. you didn't, you were messing up the flow of service. Yes. You know? And and I'm thankful for it. It was a lot of pressure at the time, but I'm really thankful for it. You know, bless her heart. The first piano lady that we had, it, it made me so anxious all the time, but she would speed up and slow down Mm-hmm. And you know, at that point, I had no concept of rubato, right? But I'm almost thankful now because anytime people do stuff like that, I can follow them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, because she was just, she never followed the drummer. I always had to follow her. And it was just <laughs> constant, like, waving back and forth, you know? <laughs> but it was good training, though. Oh, yeah. Training. <laughs> that's going to open up your ears, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, that's when you know somebody like a, either a choir member or somebody walks over, and just be like, "Please, you need to follow the piano." Like, okay, 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 and then we're back. You know, like just like like lean in, like all yeah. of them. You know, and and also think that was good for, I, I think, good training for later on because there were so many. You know, being it was an adult choir, everybody's mm-hmm. looking over at you, giving you their own cues, like follow me, kid. You know. <laughs> And I'm like, who am I supposed to be following here? Because there's like 10 people pointing at different points. And, uh-huh. you know, it, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. No, it's pretty great. I think what's what's cool is that the synergy service wise is is a real thing, um, particularly with the way that the pastor choir, like all the ways that that if it's going to keep going, you have to be like completely wide open and know that we are still not done. basically. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And and part of that, you know, I think music can be kind of packaged into the idea of um, controlling energy through sound. And, you know, and for you to be able to keep up with the service, you know, you have to be able to almost read the cadence or the kind of pacing of the pastor. Because, you know, we were kind of one of those churches that we played along with him and we punctuated certain notes yeah. which which made things like jazz come right once I started to get into jazz band mm-hmm. it made those things sort of come at least a little bit more natural than other people right. you know because to me it's just the solo instrument was a preacher now yeah and I just need to follow you and respond to you you know so um so yeah it's it's it was good training it was definitely good training are you when you're get, getting started and you're playing this church? Are you are you taking lessons at this point, or is this still just you're putting it together on your own? I was just putting it together, you know. <laughs> just uh, yeah, I, I didn't start really taking lessons until I was in maybe the tenth grade, mm-hmm. um, and things. Uh, 
and and I took I took lessons from two people, right? Uh, they were actually brothers. They okay. both went to the local college. Um, the local college had two percussion majors. And uh, the first guy I took lessons from was not a percussionist. He was a vocal major who played trumpet sometimes. But uh, he was the best thing for me, you know. Um, shout out Philip Joyner. Um, because he was just a very charismatic dude who understood music. Mm -hmm. um, and even more important, I think, looking back at it, he understands people. Yeah. Um, so he viewed music not only from kind of a a sound standpoint, but he also viewed music through a what do, how will people interpret and what will people get from this standpoint, which um, I think helped me out as a performer, you know, later on took lessons from his, his brother, his name is John Joyner. He's an amazing drum set player um, and things. So, and I think he really helped me out specifically with like independent stuff, uh, jazz and, and those types of things. So John and, and Philip Joyner. Awesome, awesome, awesome. When you're when you're taking lessons with them, are you doing are you doing just band also in in high school or okay? Yeah, yeah. So I was doing band in high school and and it was a little bit it was a little bit rough for me at first, right? Because um, you know, coming from this tradition of kind of gospel music, um mixed in with the hip hop too, it should be noted. Yeah, coming from that sort of world and then having gone to two different middle schools who had directors who didn't really understand any of that mm -hmm. and kind of were a little bit demeaning towards some of those things. It was a little mm -hmm. bit difficult for me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so now we're playing music by people who I didn't really relate to. They didn't relate to me. Um, I've had it on two different occasions. Both of those directors say they don't even remember me. <laughs> They're like, I don't even remember you being in my band. Like one of those. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm like, Oh, well, you know, <laughs> So, and then, um, you know, my, my first year in high school, I actually got kicked out of band oh. for partially the same reasons, you know, um, the, uh, we just didn't see eye to eye on some certain things. And I think part of it is I was willing to voice my opinion of like, hey, there's not just one type of music and music by old dead white people written in the 1800s is not the only music that has a certain amount of um, viability. You know, there's things happening right now, written by people right now that are just as exciting. Like, you know, that's that's cool. Um, that person disagreed, but uh, <laughs> totally fine. You know, and I'm a laugher. You can probably tell. And uh, the person didn't really like me laughing either at a lot of things. So um, thankfully, one of the best things that happened to me was uh, that guy went to a different school my second year in high school. We got a new director and that person is still one of my mentors to this day. You know, he's like a, a second father to me. His name is Clint Rayburn. And, um, and, and once again, he's a person who, sure, he's an amazing musician and an amazing teacher, but he loves people and he has a knack for understanding people. Mm -hmm. um, and eventually, after I was kind of done with a lot of the corporate stuff, I came back to be his assistant band director um, for a few years before I moved to Cobb County. What was the, was the marching experience intense at that point for you? Or is that, would that come up later? Yeah. So I, our marching band just wasn't good in high school. So, yeah. you know, we had, you know, like the basic kind of South Georgia, you know, band, like we played a, a band in a box kind of show, you know, yeah. we bought, you know, that kind of yeah. thing we hired, 
college students, most of them who hadn't had any real experience to work our band camps. Yeah. So it just, it wasn't, wasn't good. Right. <laughs> totally fine though, because it was still fun and, uh, and it was a good experience for people to have. Um, so no, it wasn't really t- intense in that way. My personal practice was pretty intense, you know? So the summer in between my ninth and 10th grade year, I just decided that I wasn't going to suck anymore. I don't know how that happened. And I just started practicing hours a day, like literally hours a day. And uh, and that only increased as my high school kind of went along to where I would wake up at like 5 a.m. And I would practice until school started. And then, you know, the school stuff would happen. I would practice during lunch. And then I would practice after school before marching band and then come home, chores, 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 homework, homework, and then practice until like 1 a.m. That happened every single day for like four years. You know, Um, I guess that's a part of my 10,000 hours, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You just did it in like, you know, a year and a half. That's all. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. I mean, I just became fanatical about it um, because I would hear. You were, I'm sorry to to interrupt, but were you. Did you get fit? Did, were you physically injured at all, like doing that much practicing, or you actually were still okay? Oh yeah, I was physically injured sometimes. I remember being kicked off of like the the dinner table because I couldn't hold my fork. You know that happened a few times. Like your your hand um, was numb or something like that, or oh yeah, like completely cramped up. You know, I've had my fingers bleeding before, and part of it for me is knowing that the world is so big. And other people's educational experiences were way different than mine. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, the one thing I can control is that I will work harder than you. Mm-hmm. Right? right? I was still practicing on a basketball. You know, I didn't even have like a drum pad, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like, if I'm going to do something, it's going to have to sheerly be because of my physicality. Like, yeah. you know, whatever information these other fancy schools are getting with all of their things. I'm just going to have to show up and do what I can do and do it well, you know, and uh, and that's kind of the approach that I took. So coming out of that time period, did you figure some things physically out so that you could manage yourself or you just weren't practicing 37 hours a day? Was that the the, the key change? Uh, you know, as, of course, as you as you get around people who are more so specialists, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'll give you little bits of information. So I clearly remember going to certain like summer camps and mm-hmm. things. And, and, you know, there might be like a percussion teacher there and they'll kind of have things. And of course I'm like soaking it all in. Sure. And I'm like writing down and taking notes and stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and I took all of that stuff to heart. Like um, I still hear their words in my head, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, all of that really helped. I went to Jacksonville state's summer camp one year mm-hmm. Um I think this is like I was in the 11th grade going into 12th grade. And uh, and I, I had no idea where I ranked in terms of other students. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just a lowly guy from South Georgia, you know. And um, and it turns out that I I guess I could just outplay people. I had no idea, right? Um, I was like, I just don't want to be in the lowest band. I just want to be in the middle one, like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out uh, that wasn't the case. And I was, I guess, just one of the better people there. And, you know, I got a chance to talk to um, the the professor there at JSU. And I got a chance to talk to, you know, a lot of the other people who are like alumni and that kind of stuff. And they're some of the people who convinced me to actually go to JSU um, that particular summer and things. So uh, the people who were teaching there gave me a lot of information. And I, and I really took those things to heart. And I think that eventually kind of helped me, you know, audition a little bit better when I auditioned for Spirit of Atlanta 
And when I actually auditioned for um, the marching Southerners there at the university mm-hmm. and things. So, yeah, I, I think it really helped, you know. What age did you did you march DCI? So it was my first year in college. So I would have been like 19. Gotcha. Yeah. And things. And, and like I said, I mean, that was kind of the only drum corps that I marched. I didn't know that other drum corps did not teach like that. So even though I gotten other offers, like after I'd marched Mystique, I was like, no, nah, I don't do drum corps. I only do inside band, <laughs> you know, like it was one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, so, you know, I probably should have, in hindsight, taken some of those offers, you know, but um, just to see like, oh, other people teach other ways, right. you know, everywhere is not like this, you know, one of those, but it was it was still a good experience for me to at least go through it. And I still talk to a lot of those people who were in that line. A lot of them went on to do really awesome things, yeah. you know. Um, so it's it's cool. It's cool. Going to JSU means that 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 begins because of the going to their camp. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Essentially, I, I was going to either probably go to like a state school like mm-hmm. uh, the University of Georgia. Yeah. Or I was looking at going to like a North Texas. I was looking into Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking into, you know, a few other places. Um, essentially, at that point, my goal was to do music, but also to do theology over the summers and eventually okay. become a, a worship pastor, basically. <laughs> right. Um, so um, it just worked out that, you know, JSU was close enough to to Georgia. Um, that I could kind of get back and forth and they had a, a thriving percussion studio, you know? Mm-hmm. Was there like a welcome to college or welcome to Alabama or something like that where you're like, Oh, I, this is not where I grew up and I have to adjust. So, some of the things weren't that different because okay. even where I grew up, it was even in the more suburbs kind of country unincorporated part of that small town. Okay. So I was very much so used to country people and I love it. I can just sit on the front porch and talk all day, you know, like no phones, no TV, let's just chit chat. Yeah. yeah, you yeah. Know? Yep. And um, cause I like that. And, and a lot of people, at least in Alabama and that particular area are kind of like that, you know, um, I was not ready to see people make bad college decisions. You know, um, so I, I think if, out of everything, that's what probably shocked me first. Right. Like, oh, your parents must have been real strict because you're going crazy right now. <laughs> like, that is wow. You know, <laughs> and this like the nonchalantness about everybody letting other people make bad decisions. And I'm like, nobody's going to say anything about that dude doing cocaine right there. Like, nobody's going to help him out, you know. <laughs> so I think that's the part that shocked me first. Not anything specifically dealing with it being in Alabama. Sure. Now, I, I did run into eventually some pretty scary moments, right? Um, I got the Grand Wizard called on me at one school that I was teaching at over the summer. What? That was exciting. It turns out his grandson was in the band. And <laughs> that I was... you specifically teaching them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, I mean, so, you know, that's kind of bound to happen. I mean, and, and whatever. But at the end of the at the end of that week, though, I flipped those kids. They loved me, you know. <laughs> so it's I, I think it, it ended up being a positive experience there. 
But as far as it being in Alabama, I didn't have, I guess, as many problems as what some people thought I would have. Mm-hmm. You know, coming from a different state, being a black dude, <laughs> you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it was totally fine for me. What was the um, ensemble, the studio kind of portion of that school like for you? And who remind me, who was there teaching when you were there? So the two professors were... Um, uh, Clint Gillespie, and uh, who's still there now, yeah. um, and Tracy Tyler, who has since retired, yeah. um, and things. So Clint Gillespie was my uh, primary uh, applied teacher, and things, and and it was really cool because he, I think, immediately recognized, like, okay, you've done timpani, you've done snare drum, you play drum set, let's do marimba, like the whole time. So that's pretty much what we did, you know, which was, which was, uh, it was good for me to be exposed to uh, that type of literature. It was good for me to do actual like percussion ensemble stuff because I never got to do that in high school. Had so you done any four mount stuff at that point? Not really. I looked at some pictures online and I played a four mallet piece for my auditions, like my scholarship auditions. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they were like, uh, that's not it. But good job for trying, you know. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so no, yeah, I, I was pretty much learning four mallet stuff kind of fresh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and things. And which is cool because, I mean, that's something that I wanted to do. I can remember being in the 11th grade and uh either in 11th or 12th grade. And, and we went to a marching band competition and we pulled up and there was a school that showed up with like six marimbas and, and, you know, six vibraphones and everybody was playing four mallets. And I'd never seen this before. And I cried like a baby. And I'm like, where is this education coming from? Like, who's doing this, you know? And I just went home and became more fanatical about practicing, I guess. You, added, you, you just stopped the sleeping. Like you, you, you stopped bothering with that and you just... Played right through the night, right? You know. <laughs> but yeah, it's so, you know, the 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 studio there was, it was very um, encouraging. You know, I think um, Clint Gillespie um, is, a, is a great organizer and he's a great um, explainer, especially to people who don't understand the beginnings, you know, like he he can really break it down in a way that you can understand it. And it's something about, I guess, how he runs the total program. It's just very organized. You always kind of know what's happening, which is is good. You know, it felt very comforting. And I just always knew what I should have been practicing. There was just never not a point that I was like, what should I be doing? You know, like one of those. Yeah. So, and I'm, and I'm very thankful for that, you know, and my time there, of course, just meeting so many other people who, um, especially the people who marched over the summers in different places yeah you know you would have people you know came from cadets and cavaliers and blue devils and boston and all of these other places and we would kind of get back together after the summer and compare styles and talk about the different teaching styles and the composition styles of their groups and who played what and whatever else and that was very um i would say unique right not too many other colleges have that many people going out to different places marching drum corps and then they come back to kind of one place, you know? So I, I think that taught me a lot. Well, and they were probably all trying to recruit you, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. And some of those people were were the reasons that 
like I, I ended up marching Mystique. Um, there are two or three people there in particular that that were like, hey, you're coming with us, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, OK. <laughs> marching Southerners, what's their um, like the, the rehearsal schedule? I think from what I remember, I mean, I think they just rehearsed maybe two two days a week. It's been so long mm. um, since I've been there. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's been I think it was two days a week, basically. I think we did have like a, a specific drumline situation, maybe like on a Wednesday mm-hmm. or something like that. But for the most part, yeah, I think I think that's what it was. Do you remember did they travel to other games or they just did home games? And that was it. There were some games that we did travel to, and I'm pretty sure we did two or three kind of exhibitions mm-hmm. um, a year. Yeah, that was that was I think it for the most part. The school has since then grown a pretty good bit, yeah. right? And um, I think their football team competes in a different level, maybe. Yeah, so I, I think, think that's right. and yeah, I, I think the band gets to go to more away games than what we than what we did. Mm-hmm. What was the 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 ensemble like outside of the marching experience? What was the ensemble experience like? Both the percussion and the bands, orchestra stuff. What was expected, basically? I, I think the good part is that I don't want it to sound like demeaning at first, but I think because we were like a small school in Alabama, I think there was a general energy of like we have something to prove, you know. And I think that kind of permeated every single ensemble and, and they just didn't let things go. They were always like, can this be better? Like if we weren't here and we were somewhere else at insert school from another state, mm-hmm. you know, would this fly, would this still be of the quality that we're looking for? Mm-hmm. I think that was in the air a lot. And I, and I think it, it really pushed us not to just be satisfied with the sounds we were making or the things we were doing. We're always kind of questioning, like, is this good enough for us or is this good enough for, like, other people? Like, if they were here listening, is that good enough for them? So I, I think that was an undertone with almost every ensemble. Like a chip, that, everyone's got a chip on their shoulder kind of thing. I'm not even sure if it was a chip. I, I think people treated it as if people from other places had the chip. Yeah. And we were like, no, we deserve the chip. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Yeah. So it was, I don't know. I, I, at least that's the way I interpreted it, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm sure other people have different ways that they probably viewed it. But um, for me, since I was just, I was in so many ensembles, you know, I, it was just so many, you know, two jazz combos, a big band. I was in. Mallet ensemble, percussion ensemble, steel band, like all, all the things at once, you know. Um, I think at, at one point I'd ended up being in um, 11 ensembles in one semester, which I do not recommend, right? <laughs> I mean, 10 is fine, but 11 is is clearly it's too much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, all of that, though, was really good because it was just exposing me to so many different types of things, mm-hmm. even if just because of the number of things I didn't necessarily perform at the highest level as I could have. I think it did serve the purpose of exposing me to a different, just a bunch of different styles of music, you know? Um, So that can, I guess, be looked at as positive and negative, you know? Well, and probably teaching 
ideas and and ensemble leading and like all that stuff you you i'm sure you were that was also part of the learning there too oh yeah i I loved it and and i think luckily for me i've always been a nerd um in the aspect of i am who i am but other people are interacting with me and what are those other people doing like why are they doing that to me right um so i was always very much so paying attention to how the professors were leading the ensembles like what methods did they use to fix us just then like what did he do to make this better you know where some other people are just like i'm playing let's play i'm like what method is he using to run this ensemble like what are we doing here you know that kind of stuff so i was always very much aware of the performer aspect but also the kind of pedagogy aspect of what was happening yeah gotcha but it is you were also, as you said, you were gig, uh, you were doing all that, but you were also gigging outside, right? Yeah, yeah, a whole lot. And and for me, you know, I was always hesitant to kind of you know tell the professors or tell other people because, of course, as a professor, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure for you to to have good performances. It's like your ensemble needs to be good. So, you know, they don't want to hear about other people's ensembles, you know, like it's just what it is. They they almost never care. So, and you know, I just don't mention it, you know, uh, and things. So eventually I, I think it did somewhat become a little bit of a problem. There's only so many hours in a day, you know, and unfortunately my, my private lessons were Monday morning. <laughs> so I would literally fly in like on a Sunday night and like have to go practice, you know, for my Monday morning lesson. So, yeah, it was tough sometimes. Where were these gigs happening? Some of them would be in in the states. You know, we we had a pretty good amount of gigs in in Texas. We had a pretty good amount of gigs in California. Um, I think that was kind of their hubs. Um, a pretty good amount in New York, Oklahoma. Oddly, um, we went to Hawaii at least five or six times. Um, and is this? I'm sorry. Is this a, a like an organization that was like out of Atlanta, or or just how did you? How do you? How are you even connected to to yeah. do all these? So it it was weird. So um, a, a former person that I danced with, mm-hmm. right, recommended me as a potential drummer. Uh, they needed somebody to to do a stomp like gig at the World of Coke, um, which is okay. in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, they were based out of Oklahoma. And things. So it's like dancers, experimental percussion type of situation. There's an illusionist involved, like that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a, not necessarily a variety show, but it was a show that incorporated all of those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's essentially how I got hooked up with them. They did a show that was kind of in proximity, close to where we were. And then uh, they just kept calling me um, and things. The other one was kind of like a cover band type of situation. So it was primarily just drum set mm-hmm. and stuff. So, um, and I, I think I just found them just through one of the studios that I was playing at and stuff. I had a studio pretty consistently when I was in college that I would just show up every Saturday and they would have a list of songs for me to play on and I would listen to them and track it down. And um, so, yeah, I think they kind of hooked me up with with those people. Uh, was that cover band, was that like, a, would they play weddings or was it like, a, it was still like corporate kind of stuff? They played weddings, but uh, some of the weddings were, I mean, obviously they were, they were the bigger weddings. Sure. You know, um, 
and things. So weddings that actually had bands. Is that what you're, like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and then some of those weddings are pretty fancy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So we we did some weddings and and then a lot of like corporate events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they're like ballroom dinner tea things. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Nice. When you when you're done. Do 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 you just move back? Like what? What's the what's your plan once undergrad is over? So once undergrad was over, I was planning on at still at that point going into ministry. Yeah, I was studying apologetics um, pretty heavily. I had studied under some people personally um, and things, but for my purposes, then you know I started to become a little bit disillusioned. I guess with. Um, a little bit of some of some of the organized religion stuff. So I was like, I might look at actually teaching music and still doing some performing stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, at that point, uh, I was kind of traveling back and forth between Alabama. So I would, I had two schools I was teaching in Alabama and then I had uh, three schools I was teaching in Georgia. Yeah. Um, so I kind of travel across straight lines. Were you still living in, in, in Alabama? Alabama? Yeah. And then eventually, there were some issues I had with the music department. So I actually changed my major purely to psychology. I was already taking psychology classes just for the fun of it because I like learning, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and so, so I changed my, my my major to psychology. And um, and then I just I I just left. I was like, all right, bye. <laughs> and stuff. So I went and I just started performing full time. Um, and I did that for another few years before I became an assistant uh, band director. So you didn't you didn't finish undergrad? No, no. Technically, I have enough uh, credits, right? Mm-hmm. I have too many credits technically, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I don't. I think I would have to do like student teaching or something like that oh, in order sure. to finish. And I'm like, not gonna happen. <laughs> well, because the thing I was thinking is just, would there be a a reason either in terms of like salary or or something that that would that would make it worthwhile for you to whatever just get the get the thing get the document and your I, I tell people the kind of contracted work that I do now I get paid for students to to have results mm-hmm. you know yeah and um unfortunately somebody's doctorate doesn't make their students play better sure. it makes you better yes yeah. it doesn't make you able to make your students perform at a higher level and people pay me to make students perform at a high level. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, I'm not sure if me going to do student teaching for free and getting a degree will will change any of that, sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So um, at least that's the, the kind of way I look at it, you know? I don't think any of that time was wasted, you know? Sure. Even the time that I spent, like, in my psychology classes, I had a, a great psychology professor um and things and uh you know he invited me out to his personal farm and stuff got to train horses uh got to go train some dolphins um you know and 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 so that was really cool especially from a teaching standpoint to see um the processes that he used to change behavior Mm -hmm. uh, was really cool um so yeah I, i really enjoyed my time in college and i did too many things you know like I was heavily involved in SGA. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, and you know, at one point, I, I held office, and you know, I helped uh, organize all, all the student events and and whatnot. So, 
it was it was a, a great time and i don't think i would really change the stuff you know um but it was it was a plethora of things sure uh-huh. <laughs> most definitely from there you said you start working as you start assisting as your assistant director at a high school is that kind of like your first yeah. As far as my first official teaching gig, mm-hmm. I'd already been like the director of percussion at a few different schools and stuff. So basically kind of like what I do now. Um, it's just there. It was like, I guess, a more um, everyday type of position. And technically I got in because I was a pair pro and I had done uh, theater stuff before. So okay. I was basically put in charge of the theater. So lighting, um, working the board, sound, that kind of stuff. And and then I was also the assistant to the director, which is cool because he let me have my own ensemble. Um, uh, you know, of course, I got to teach all the percussionists. I got to teach the color guard mm. and uh, <laughs> and all of the things. So it was it was a really kind of stressful um, position because we didn't really have staff. You know, oh. like I was the color guard director. Yeah. And I was the percussion director. And I was the brass guy, you know, like all yeah. of the things. But um, it was really cool to to get a chance to work with my mentor and um, to watch how he moved both in his personal life and his in his professional life and how he combined those things together. How long did you do that? I think it was like three years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then from there, you you start kind of building the other parts of your career. Yeah. So essentially, uh, one day he showed up and was like, hey, I think I'm going to go be a worship leader at a church. Right. And I'm like, oh, OK, I'm leaving, too. <laughs> today? Okay, Do I leave today? Yes. OK. OK. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? I'm going to move, you know, to Cobb County, which is kind of, you know, one of the the central hubs for band and music education here in Georgia. Yeah. And um. And I was like, you know, I, there's there's people who are there who are willing to invest in their students and things. And, and I think, you know, with my connections, I can get into a lot of these places. So essentially, that's what I did, you know. All right. So, Marcus, I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. Ooh. <laughs> good, 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 good. Good start. Good start. All right. First question. Uh, what's an issue either in percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Describing or teaching physicality instead of sound. Yeah. I do not necessarily like when people describe techniques and forms of how to move your hands rather than have something be described as to what kind of sound you're looking for. Um, and I mainly say that because everybody's hands work differently. And I think it's more important to build musicians with concepts of sound who work backwards. Like in order for me to make these sounds, I need to move my hands like blah, blah, blah. Not take your stick and move it here in your first fulcrum and your second and your back fingers do this and you're going to turn three inches. And like all of that is mathematical dancing, you know, um, whereas if a person understood sound shapes and timbres and colors and texture, they can deduce how to make those textures happen as opposed to the first line of defense being turn your wrist 25% and 25% arm and you know like those types of things so that that really bothers me (laughs) when you mentioned that and I, I was thinking about the I guess the need particularly if we're thinking about it on a drumline situation for everything to look similar 
Is it, so I, I was just thinking about what the motivation is for the physical beginning. Yeah, and I and I think that's what's led a lot of people wrong. You know, th- there's some incredibly good-looking drum lines who sound terrible, um, and I think it's because of that they've they've taught their students how to look a certain way. And I'm like, cool, go become a dancer. You'd be a great dance line tech. That would be great. But <laughs> just because something somebody moves the same way, it doesn't mean the intentionality of the sound works the same way. Um, and and a lot of that has to just deal with the the way people are gripping, the way people are moving through space, and and a lot of other factors go along with that. But no, aesthetically pleasing things don't always necessarily equal balance and blend, and it doesn't always necessarily equal you know um, clarity. Let's say it like that. You know, you can't tell me that somebody playing, I don't know, three inches on a bottom bass drum is going to balance with that tenor line playing three inches on the smallest drum. You know, like it's not going to work out, just say. So I just I don't agree with that. (laughs) When you when you're working with with lines, are you asking them to make to make the the audio or audio oral decision? I guess that's the word. Use your ears so that you can tell and match. Like, what's I'm just thinking about the way that that gets taught. Like, what's your way of? Yeah. yeah. So, a lot of times, what we'll end up doing is we'll tweak things up, down, in, out, whatever, until it reaches a point where the balance is good. Because the first line of defense is them hearing the sounds that you're going for and then recalling a way to make that happen with their hands. Right. In a perfect world, you would have time to fix the velocity of the stroke and the height of the stroke and the touch as far as the pressure in their hands and where they're feeling their fulcrums and things. And if all of that is set up the same way, let's say on the snare line, you would have the same sounds, right? right. Uh, and things. But I think, you know, obviously the groups who can do that well, such as in stuff like drum core, you have time to do that. Right. So they end up normally in a pretty good place. And a lot of high schools, you have people who do not get to take that step of this sound exploration while you're doing the heights and all of this other stuff. So the kids just come out of it knowing three inches, six inches, nine inches. And I'm like, what what are you listening for, though? I'm not listening for anything. I'm looking to turn my wrist this far. And I'm like, okay, I guess, you know, Mm." (laughs) So that's, I think that's where that gets lost a little bit, right? At the highest levels, I don't think it's a problem. Um, But at, yeah, general high schools, they have no idea what what actual balance and actual blend sounds like. They know I'm supposed to play this high off the drum and turn my wrist, you know? Yeah. And I guess we somehow create something like music or something. I guess, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking because I, I feel like there are times when I've seen I feel like I, I've seen things like when I've gone to PASIC and I'll see like a high school percussion ensemble and they'll play like a, a pretty high level percussion ensemble piece. It's my opinion, but I could tell that they're making they're playing what is written. Mm-hmm. Like crescendos, like it sounds re- it's really clear, like or or you know it's but I don't feel there's like no passion. There's no meaning. It's like it's all just they have 
made it physical to the point where they have music has appeared, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And and then that there's probably another pet peeve of mine. Sure. Is teaching planned body expressions. Oh, <laughs> Let yeah, me say yeah. it like that. I know what right? you mean. Mm-hmm. So and and I get it, right? You know, the all of those studies came out about the the piano competitions and the people who move certain ways scored higher, you know. Um and and they got scored very differently if it was just a listen a listening aural kind of competition, mm-hmm. you know. But so I can get that, you know. But I think also it it pegs people in a very specific spot as far as how you're supposed to feel the music. Yeah. Whereas somebody might feel something like on the back, but somebody yeah. might feel that like this, like on the downs mm-hmm. of your body, mm-hmm. you know, you're forcing people into one interpretation of how to feel that motion externally. When I don't, I don't think sometimes it's helpful because it keeps people together and it gives them an option if they don't have an opinion Mm-hmm. But sometimes it also very much so messes people up and it forces them into one way of thinking about a, a, a phrase. Yeah. yeah. D- Daru Jones? Yeah, Daru, baby! So <laughs> I I remember he did a clinic at PASIC a couple of years ago. And well, for, I, I went to about 10 minutes and I, I was like, it's like one of those where I was like, I'm just going to come in. I just want to see like this thing. And I remember for the first like seven minutes, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what the, like, no idea. I couldn't, con- like, I came in in the middle. And so, like, I, I was just kind of, like, throwing myself in there to kind of get a sense. And I'm like, and and then I figured out that he, everything he was doing was, like, timing-wise, really locked in. But it sounded like it wasn't. Yeah. But, it, and it was, like, this mix of those two things. I was like, Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> like what he's doing is actually incredibly hard, but and it sounds sloppy, but like intentionally and it's like it like I, did, I don't know, I, like I totally dug it after I had to like get but but I had to personally get over the hump, you know. A lot of people do, especially if you don't grow up with that. You know, luckily for me, I think that was part of my upbringing with the beginning of what people now call neo soul. Mhm. Um, so people like Jay Dilla mm-hmm. um, and The Roots, yeah. Questlove, oh, yeah. D'Angelo, mm-hmm. um, those type of people were really exploring, I guess, the wider version of playing behind the beat and, you know, kind yeah. of this. But it's like, uh, where's it at? You know, and, <laughs> exactly. Where's it at? <laughs> So the way some people describe it is like, you know, if time was a circle, right, they're playing their circle more like an egg. It's like an oval. Oh. You know, so it's like an egg rolling as opposed to a a circle. Yeah. A wheel or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still rolling, but yeah. it's, it's just rolling in a different way. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I like that. I like that analogy. Do I, do I, 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 I can, I can put you as a trademark on that, right? Like, just be like Marcus Hawkins, trademark, egg roll. Oh, that me said that? No, 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 no. I think um, the first time I heard it, and it's not, he didn't even come up with it. I think Jacob Collier said it. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, when he was trying to describe even like certain ways that like Latin and Caribbean music kind of happen, you know, trying to describe like shaker patterns, the 
like these kind yeah. of rhythms that seemingly kind of go back and forth, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. I, you and your, and again, this, another thing we made me think about is that one of my colleague at zoo had brought in, um, Ghanaian drummer, his name's Senny. I can't remember his last name, but, um, but he was playing, he would play a rhythm, um, when he was soloing that sounded like at times it sounded like it was straight 16th notes. And at times it sounded like it was triplets, triplets, 16th note triplets. And at times it was somewhere in the middle. And it was just like, it was blowing my mind. Like, I don't know which one he's doing, but I like all of them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, I feel like it was like that kind of concept. Yeah. I love like, it. I, I love all of them. I can't write this down, but I, but it like, it's not, but it's not what he, whatever he's playing, I can't write it down, but I know, I know what it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so awesome. All right. So some other questions. Um, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Oh, multiple students have. Oh yeah. You no, know, I've, I've had the, the, um, the shirts that have all of my quotes on there. You know, I've had uh, multiple people that, you know, the little um, end of year band banquets that people get up and do impersonations and things. So <laughs> it's hard for me <laughs> to, to do it because I'm just myself. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty predictable person at a certain point. Right. My gestures, my hand movements. Mm-hmm. Since I'm a nerd, I even have tracked most of them down. Like I know where they come from. Okay. Right. Um <laughs> But it's it's weird to see how other people pick up on them, mm-hmm. you know. Especially when I'm teaching, there's common things that I'll do. And normally, with my analogy, since I'm a pretty um, quick like person that comes up with analogies and these types of situations, uh, those change. But there are certain sayings that kind of come up fairly often. Like what? I, <laughs> I wouldn't even know, right? <laughs> I, I don't even, they just happen. I guess I'd have to be teaching for me to, to uh-huh. do it. You know, I don't know what okay. those would be. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I was going to say, I, I would bet the one, one gesture that you've, you've made, you've made kind of like this, you, you do this, you, everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they probably, I would bet some of them like, will just come, come to here and just, just leave and then they'll be done. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Funny. Super cool. Okay. What's the most, impractical item of clothing you own does an accessory count um somebody sent me one of those stupid drum metronome watches you know the kind that's supposed to like thump the back of your hand i don't actually no i don't i don't know these don't even mention it they'll try to advertise to you on facebook (laughs) they're the most useless thing ever don't buy one of those do not buy <laughs> i mean basically the principle is that it 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 pulses on your arm so you can feel the tempo yeah. but uh no i need it to be like an electrical shock if like <laughs> while you're playing if you're actually going to feel that you know so that's useless wow. but uh <laughs> that's good that's i good. do i do own an extremely heavy like parka and i live in georgia so it comes out once every five years maybe <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna ask like you probably don't own like snow boots i would assume no no <laughs> yeah. 
That's always it's funny whenever I I interview people who who are like either from like usually it's Texas, but it's like they're from Texas, whatever, and then they live in like they go to Michigan or Eastman or something like that, and they're and then they come back and they're like, I still have the snow boots. I don't know, I don't I don't need them, you know. (laughs) So cool. All right, Uh, what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? I'm a little bit of a sap, so I would say a, a great movie is Fifty First Dates. Oh yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, um, I were a bad movie. Ah, since I have young kids, okay. right? Yeah. Uh, I would say any of these like high school musical movies are terrible to me. They're, <laughs> they're just corny, and uh, they're like, they're gonna keep making these, you yeah. know? So yeah, I don't, I don't like any of those. Well, <laughs> you would make them too if they were making you that much money. That's all, you know, as you know. You know, I probably would. I'm going to be in like in the back. <laughs> uh, that was good. That's good. All right. What's what's a favorite book? There's a lot. There's a lot. I, I like uh, a book called Blue Like Jazz. I'm not exactly sure who wrote it, but it's a um, a, a book that describes kind of humanity, uh, kind of partially from a religious standpoint. Um, and then um, I like a book called, uh, what is that? The 12 Rules of Life. Um, it's by Jordan Peterson. Um, it's kind of like a Canadian counselor, philosopher guy. Mm. But yeah, I would say the, those two are ones that, more so recently that I've kind of checked out. Gotcha. What's in, uh, it could be like a pop culture type item, but something that if you meet someone and they say, whoever they are, and they say, I like whatever this, this thing is. And then you're like, we're good. What's that for you? I, I would have to say, I would have to stay outcast, right? Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Being that I grew up with them, I still think that, um, Andre Three Stacks is the greatest, you know, from a lyricism standpoint and the way that he um, phrased things across bar lines and over the beat. And yeah, I, I really, I really like that group. It's <laughs> yeah. a good call. I, some point last year or so, I, I put back on Speaker Box Love Below and I was just mm-hmm. like, this, this album is incredible. I forgot how, how much stuff is on both both the sides of that album is a lot. Is, is, is a lot. <laughs> and they're so different, but they're also, it, it, I don't know. It, it just worked. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. I love it. And I, and I like most of their stuff, mm-hmm. not so much their first album, um, Southern playlistic, uh, but I, most of the other ones. Yeah. I really like. All right. Uh, what is your go-to karaoke song? I only did karaoke once. Uh, and that's weird because I played in a live karaoke band for like four years. Oh, okay. um, not anymore, but I did play in a live karaoke band for four years. So it's it's Creep by Radiohead. They're one of my favorite groups. I love yes. Tom York. He's a garbage singer, but he writes wonderful songs, right? Oh. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, Creep is it's the only one I've actually done. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. I in uh, I was teaching music history this semester, and I was. Um, I was trying to show the students an actual incorporation of the Andes Martino or what I don't know what it's called. Do you know what the it's the um, it's one of the 
theremin style t- thing, but it's like it's like it's a keyboard that has like a string on this Martin knot or oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I don't know how to pronounce it, but I, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't, so, I don't think I've ever heard the name of that thing. Right. So. See, I I don't think I got it right. But anyway, so I showed them I showed them someone like demonstrating it, and then I showed them um Saturday Night Live, Radiohead doing national anthem from um kid a because johnny greenwood is playing it and like and i'm trying to be like okay watch johnny greenwood but tom york is doing his like you know like (laughs) this crazy movement thing and they like couldn't they couldn't stop laughing and i'm like please pay attention to johnny greenwood (laughs) (laughs) and they they jolty you know it's times yeah yeah. (laughs) he was clearly never in marching band and they taught him how to forcefully like one thing, you know, <laughs> that is true. That he is never ruined by it. Right. <laughs> we, we were, uh, another kind of radio related thing. Um, we, there was a, a group that, uh, that was local in where I'm in, in Columbia, Missouri. They did, they came together and played, uh, a set that Radiohead did soon after OK Computer came out, like a famous the Hammerstein Ballroom or something like that, and and it remind and it's like one of those things where you know it's like if you see a cover band, there's like a certain person that has to like you have to get this person right for this cover band to work, and like the Johnny Greenwood guy was awesome, and I was like it doesn't matter whoever else is in this band, but you got that dude. Because he could play the bells and he could do – he had all the pops, buzzes, and switches and he could play like really raging guitar and it nice. was it was great. Nice, nice. So, think about it. It's a concept. I'm, I'm more – you know. It was... <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Do you have a sports fandom? Uh, no. Okay. Atlanta has let us down so many times. <laughs> You are not giving Atlanta any of your emotional energy. Uh, they don't deserve it, man. I don't no, 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 no. I mean, and I and I wasn't like a huge sports fan. You know, I grew up playing basketball, but um no. I mean, I'll I'll casually watch things, you mm-hmm. know. Of course, I casually tuned into the Braves this past season. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't jump on the bandwagon or anything. So right. Mm-hmm. A certain Super Bowl loss, it's kind of unforgivable. Uh <laughs> You know, it's I don't think anybody expected to win. So I'd, we're okay. You know? <laughs> we're okay. <laughs> okay, I got you. Oh that, that's funny. All right. Um, what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Biggest kitchen mess up. Um, it happened uh about a year ago. I made a mistake and bought uh detergent pods instead of the dish washing pods. So um, foam everywhere. Our dishes smelt like floral scented, like lavender ocean, like for for months, you know, and um, it was it was great. (laughs) I was like, what is happening here? (laughs) Oh, don't don't do that. The pods are different. Don't eat them either. So uh, (laughs) I got you. All right. um, Next question. This is like a mood changer, but. You take this one wherever you want to go. Um, being a percussionist and s- someone who teaches, but also someone who is an African-American. Mm-hmm. And your thoughts. 
Uh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I, I would say um, from a teaching standpoint, right? I think it's important for people to meet people where they are, right? And and obviously, in in order to do that, you have to be aware of maybe their culture as far as their cultural music and maybe some of the things like inside of their culture, like some of their sayings and their vernacular and these types of things, which by the way, this is something I have to do when I teach white people. The voice fools people, um, the voice that I have. So they just think that I've heard of like these rock bands and all these other things. And I'm like, I haven't. So, um, but- Unless it's Radiohead, but then, and then you're-, you're... Unless it's Radiohead, right? So even I have to go out of my way sometimes to study um, various things within other people's culture. So I, if I know that I'm visiting a school and I know some of the things that they like and some of the things they've been exposed to, you know, I can I can prep myself for that. Um, and I think it's something important when you're dealing with certain types of communities and whatever else. So most of the problems that I've had within music, especially early on with some of those music educators, is they were teaching in areas that were very different from them. And they didn't go out of their way at all to try to understand those communities, including me, because I was in that community, you know, and uh, and that could have easily have gone south. I could be working at Geico right now, you know. Um, so thankfully, you know, I had musical experiences outside of that an academic situation, you know, and um, and and thankfully I kept kind of going with it until I somebody came that understood that hey, there's different types of things and. Luckily, that person was into jazz, so he at least understood um, some of that stuff. But I think from that standpoint, um, understanding at least a little bit of culture, you don't have to be in that, you know, you don't have to show up like wearing your clothes or nothing. <laughs> um, so that's an interpretation of that. Um, thing number two, I think, is being more aware of how we can bring people from different cultures into, um, I guess, different forms of classical music that maybe they've kind of just looked over in the past. You know, there's a lot of validity in, in us studying some of the greats like Mozart and Bach and Rachmaninoff and all of these things. And that's something traditionally within African-American culture that we don't necessarily um, push. It's just not something that's interesting to them. But if we can find ways to make it accessible and we can find ways to present a path to like, hey, this is how people become orchestral percussionists, not just like you're going to be in the marching band and play snare drum, like woo, like one of those, you know. Um, if we can start to find people and meet them where they are, I think I think we'll have a whole lot more candidates. First of all, to make some of these spaces a little bit more diverse, um, and and I think there are people out here who are already starting to do some of that uh, work who come from the orchestral space. Um, so I, I find that to be exciting, but hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> I mean, if it's every, everyone's answer is different on that. So you know, mm, mm. why leave it, leave it open uh, in that way. Very nice. But yeah. Yeah. The one thing you, you, among many things you maybe think about was what we've had, cause I I've talked with kind of some of the music history professors here about even just ways to make this kind of like, even like if if it's and even if it's not just for diversity for student diversity, but just how to make music history more interesting, um, you know, so that someone who's who just doesn't who's like not that far along may not 
understand why it's important to study whoever. And a lot of times to me, I always think of it in like, well, how did they like make money? And in some ways, a lot of times it's like, okay, if you understand that they were actually just like trying to put two kids together, then maybe we can like pull that person off the pedestal and realize, okay, I'm trying to put pull two gigs together. Yeah, that's understandable. And and obviously in a classroom setting, you wouldn't be able to start where every student has understanding. Right. But for me, you know, you can always start from, hey, let's let's approach history from where we are now. Yeah. What is the number one style of music in the world right now? Trap music from Atlanta. Like it's overwhelmingly outselling everything. Yeah. You know, but the amount of music professors that would be totally out of the water when we started talking about this, mm-hmm. you know, um, would be in the 90th percentile, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's it's difficult to meet people who aren't necessarily like music people, like musicologists mm-hmm. um, who are interested in discant clausulae and the hurdy-gurdy and species to counterpoint, like, you know, like those things. Of course, music nerds love it. Yeah, yeah. But um, starting that far back sometimes gets a little bit weird. And, yeah. you know, maybe if they started around the time when bebop started to cross over into funk and disco, mm-hmm. because that's at least a little bit more relatable to some people, yeah. you know. Um, that same time is when that stuff also simultaneously started to cross over into rock. You know, I think that is a good pinnacle where you can move forwards and backwards Mm -hmm. kind of at the same time. And that would meet most people's commonality. Yeah. 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 That's that's a good way. Um, I think they should teach uh, those things completely different at HBCUs because almost every single one of those still teaches it from a um, a very uh, sort of sort of uh, European focused tertian mm-hmm. harmony kind of style yeah. and i'm like uh right now the most complicated music theory stuff is, is happening in gospel churches everything is a secondary dominant everything is an extended harmony yeah. you know every single thing has 11s and 13s and flats and all the you know all of the augmented chords mm-hmm. and um and i'm like if you can teach somebody at those types of universities with music they're already very familiar with all yeah. of the saucy chords are already in there just start there just do that you know, yeah, yeah. and um, I don't know why they don't. I mean, I do know why they don't. It's, you know, uh, most of their professors, especially ones who studied musicology and, and um, music theory, went to other universities that didn't necessarily have those types of students. Which, Once again, it, it goes back to the community discussion, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A few more questions. One, uh, where is somewhere you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? I haven't been to Australia. I've I've been most other places, I guess. Uh, never been to Iceland. Yeah. So, but definitely Australia. You know, I say Iceland because um, I, I would like to hear. Um, there's a, a few people that I like from there. Um, Bjork being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a kind of a transitional film composer named uh, Olafur Arnolds um, that comes from there. Sure. Um, uh, but yeah, so I would I would like to hear the the music of Iceland and actually experience you know the the motivation because a lot of them actually write their music inspired by the geography of the place you know so I I find that to be interesting yeah very cool all right 
strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? So this one time I was doing um, a gig for BMW um, and we were, were we in Germany? I don't know. But the the actual like president of all of BMW was there. And we, for whatever reason, were playing pirates. And the the actual what, for real. What do you mean? What do you mean you were playing? I'm sorry. What do you mean? It was it was a part of the corporate gig. We were on stage. We were pirates. It was like a ship themed. Okay. Situation. Like you were dressed up as part like. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. All right. I'm sorry. And, and they um, came to kick us off the ship. Like they were taking over the ship. So I got kicked off the stage by the president of BMW. He didn't speak speak one lick of English. It was just straight up like, I'm a big German guy. Uh-huh. So um, yeah. So I, I think that was the the weirdest thing. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> are you like is this a bit like what, 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 what yeah i mean it, that was part of it like we had to practice it and everything so like it was <laughs> oh yeah God. like they came to take over the ship i'm not <laughs> sure if that was supposed to be some sort of like we're taking over these markets kind of thing or you know but that that was interesting to say the least <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> gotcha all right Marcus, last question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Oh, man. Uh, I I can't recall the song, right? But there's an artist named uh, Yeba. Um, She comes out of this sort of tradition of quasi like post Ella neo soul jazz kind of gospel situations. She's like a white chick um, and things. So she can, she can sing her vocal chops are crazy, but her emotional chops are just as developed. Right. And um, I think it was just some random clip that I saw of her singing something. And I, and I just, I don't even know what it was, you know? And, and I think, you know, uh, Sure, you give pause for the for the technical prowess of it, but then also you sit back and you allow yourself to feel and interpret the words and and the way she's saying the words and the weight that she puts on things or how she lifts off of a syllable or something. You know, uh, and for a person like me who's very technically minded, um, to start off appreciating something so, I guess technically difficult and impressive and virtuosic and then immediately forget all of that and just feel things it, it's it's important so yeah yeba check her out <laughs> all right okay marcus we are done thank you so much <laughs> so. Oh man, it was fun. I don't you know some of those questions I'm like oh man I probably should have thought about this before <laughs> It's kind of the fun. Most definitely. Most definitely. Anyway. Such a great time talking to Marcus Hawkins for this interview. It's a lot of fun. I wish him the best of luck throughout the summer working for Blue Knights, along with all of his upcoming gigs and continued work for his media company. Marcus Hawkins Media. And looking forward to meeting him in person soon. This week's rave 
is an appreciation for the life of the recently departed Martin Drywitz. This is likely not a name that anyone who has been on this podcast would know, aside from one, Rich Holly. When Rich and I talked in the spring of 2020, he discussed his background growing up on Long Island and being a part of the Long Island Youth Orchestra, a group that he was part of in the 1970s and I was part of in the 1990s. And during our time there, the founder and director of the group was Martin Drywitz. Martin had retired from directing the youth orchestra over a decade ago and passed last week at the age of 91. I should also note that due to a scheduling quirk that put me in New York, visiting my family and attending a party in honor of my godson's college graduation that weekend, I was able to attend the memorial and wake for Martin Drywitz this past Sunday. I was able to catch up with a few folks who I was in orchestra with. I mean, this is nearly 30 years ago now. And meet a few new people along the way, including those who have directed and or continue to direct the ensemble. I was among a number of alums who spoke about Mr. Drywitz and told stories about our times there. So there are a few things to mention here, some of which I knew and some of which I learned. For one... The youth orchestra was started by Drywitz around 1962, and this was in a time when youth orchestras were being started all over the U.S. Two, he was career-wise a person who owned his own travel agency as a travel agent and did the youth orchestra as a side project. He was someone who was a music historian and aficionado and put this group together on his own. The third thing is that the real treasure of the Long Island Youth Orchestra experience, aside from playing with a lot of amazing musicians who would later go on to be major teachers and performers, and in many other fields all over the world, were the summer world tours that he led, two of which I was fortunate to go on in 1993 and 94. And four, Martin Drywitz introduced myself and many others to some of the great works of orchestral repertoire some of which are still my favorites, including Hindemith's Symphonic Metamorphosis and the Romeo and Juliet Fantasy Overture by Tchaikovsky. There's a lot more to say, but I'll leave you with a story that I told at his wake. One which those who were there for this story remember very vividly, but one that spoke to his gentle nature and professionalism. We were playing an outdoor concert and we were performing Richard Wagner's Overture to Rienzi to open the show, which we had done a few times earlier that tour. When we finished the work, we were greeted with applause, except for one man who walked right up to Martin Drywitz, went right up in his face and berated him for many, many minutes, saying some nasty things in a heated voice, and then eventually leaving. I couldn't really hear what he was saying because I'm a percussionist. I was in the back. Martin turned to the orchestra after the man left and in an extremely calm voice and demeanor said that the man who just spoke to him had relatives who were killed during the Jewish Holocaust of World War II. And unbeknownst to me at the time, but something I now know much more about, Wagner's music was held in extremely high regard by the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler as a symbol for great art, while also noting that Wagner was a very well-known anti-Semite 
whose writing formed some of the basis for Hitler's own philosophy. He delivered this information calmly and effectively, and we turned right around as an ensemble and continued performing our hour-long show as if nothing happened. It was an unbelievable example of calmness and professionalism, and one that I will continue to think about and reflect on as I continue forward in my own professional career. So thank you, Martin Drywitz, for touching so many lives and literally introducing the world to thousands of New York high school kids for over 50 years. You will be missed. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pizza Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for episode 300. Until then.